1: And away we go. Episode 8 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. A day on which we have fresh, piping hot Washington football team news to dive headfirst into. Alex Smith reportedly is being released. Expected news, yes, but still very significant. And I would say very good news. Now, you're probably saying, geez, Galdi, you're going to celebrate the guy getting cut? Well, I'm not going to celebrate it, but... I am going to endorse it. Yeah, it's funny. I actually got a text on Monday from my pal, my friend, my co-host, in fact, on the Nats Chat podcast, Mark Zuckerman. And he said regarding me endorsing Alex Smith being cut of having endorsed on the Monday pod, the Orioles trading Trey Mancini. He's like, Galdi, you heartless SOB. What's going on with you, man? What kind of a guy are you? And I don't really know. It's a good question. I, I actually wrestle with that every day. Still trying to figure that out. But hey, here's what I always want for my teams, okay? If I could kind of boil it down to a phrase, to a couple of words, I'd say this. What I always want for my teams is ruthless aggression, okay? Be bold. Be smart. Do not let emotion dictate behavior. It's our job as fans to be emotional. It's your job as a team to be calculating it. And to do always what's in the best interests of the organization. And so if you are a head coach like Rod Rivera, especially in a coach-centric approach, if you are a GM like Martin Mayhew, if you are an executive vice president of football slash player personnel, boy, that's a mouthful as Marty Herney is, that's what you're there to do. You're not there to get caught up in the gaga. You're not there to get caught up in the good feelings. You're there to do what's in the best interests of the organization. And I do believe that releasing Alex Smith is in the best interest of the Washington football team. So lots to do with that today. I'll give you my full breakdown in moments. Special guest on the pod today, Mitch Tisler of NBC Sports Washington's Washington Football Talk podcast. He has at least somewhat of an opposing view to Washington cutting Alex. We'll get into that uh, with Mitch and also into what now for Washington at quarterback. Now it does appear as if our football team will have a 17 game schedule for 2021. I want to talk about that with you today. Uh, I'm going to talk nationals and Orioles today off some things that went down in grapefruit league play on Monday. And I'm going to talk Virginia basketball today. Much needed win for Wahoo Wah uh, on Monday night, albeit over lowly Miami. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al podcast at yahoo dot com. I got this email from John Pearl, and I wanted to share it with you because it ran the gamut in terms of emotions, actually. Funny we get into that here of what we just talked about, but here's what John had to write, okay? You got to kind of stick with this, but there's a payoff at the end. So he writes, Al, I'm a longtime listener of your previous radio shows and now this podcast, which I love. I am sure you have received many, many emails from followers. As such, I have been trying to figure out a way to make this message stand out a bit. So I figure that the truth is the best way to accomplish this. I am a listener who lives in Connecticut, who ardently follows WFT, parentheses, always Redskins to me, the Capitals, Orioles, and Terps. I am originally from Virginia. I am 48 years old and have cerebral palsy. I lost my job during the height of the pandemic, as many have. Unfortunately, being handicapped, has made getting work much harder and time can hang heavy without a job. Listening to your various shows has brought much joy to me. I learn, I laugh, and I appreciate the way in which you comport yourself. And he goes on to say some other very nice things as well. I hope you know that you are making a small difference for a stranger out there. Thank you, John Pearl. (laughs) P.S. Update the song, man. Even I, as a huge fan can't handle the first 10 seconds of your show. (laughs) That's awesome. That's outstanding. Okay. He gets you all worked up and all teary eyed with, you know, what he's dealing with and what he has to overcome and everything else. And he butters me up with all these nice things. And then he drops the hammer at the end of that email. Your song sucks. Fix that, pal. Step up and do better. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. But as a counterpoint, as a counterpoint, I also got this email from Joe. He said, Al, another great show. Count me as a second listener who is getting used to your opening theme. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. So you're the other one. You're the other one who uh, who happens to like the song. Listen, When it comes to the music on this podcast, in this world that is not using copyrighted music without permission, we are doing work. We are doing diligence every single day behind the scenes. The wheels are in motion, as Jerry told Babu on Seinfeld many years ago. So I don't know where we're gonna land with all this music stuff when it comes to the opening theme and Go-Go Thursday and everything else, but we're working hard at it and we're trying to figure some things out. So we shall see. Speaking of figuring things out, it sure looks like the Washington football team has figured out what it wants to do with Alex Smith. So the news came down on Monday. Multiple reports that the Washington football team will be releasing Alex Smith in the coming days. Uh, which day exactly, we do not know. Could be today, Tuesday. Could be the next day, Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, we do know that the NFL offseason is underway here. The legal tampering period begins on March 15th. The NFL's new league year, i.e. the official starts of free agency and the trading period get going on March 17th. So time is moving quickly and Washington is getting its ducks in a row, getting set for what figures to be, and certainly what very much could be, a big time offseason. Washington could be a a player this offseason especially when it comes to free agency. But specific to Alex and the parting of the ways that is very much happening right now, uh, this is 100% the right move. If you have doubts, if you're like, eh, are we sure about this? Uh, be sure, be sure. This is totally the right call that Washington is making. And we'll start with this, okay? Alex Smith, very clearly, great story, okay? I mean, by now, everyone knows the story. 17 surgeries on that ravaged right leg, comeback player of the year, for the 2020 season. It is legitimately, I believe, and I know a lot of you agree with this, the greatest comeback in sports history, given what he faced nearly not only losing his leg, but losing his life, given the brutality that is professional football for him to come back from what he dealt with to play NFL football and to not just play, but be a starter on an NFC East winning team. And I don't care how bad the division was. He comes back as a starter. He goes 5-1 and one as a quarterback in 2020. And we'll get to the notion of quarterback records a little bit later on here in our discussion. But just that he did what he did, it's an all-time great comeback. I can't think of a better one in terms of what you overcame and what you ended up doing. So the comeback will never be forgotten. The fact that he's being released does not lessen the comeback. He's a great dude. He's a great teammate. People talk about this guy in godlike fashion. So all of that's true. None of that gets eradicated by Washington being in the process here of releasing Alex Smith. But here's the bottom line. As a quarterback, Alex Smith is a road to nowhere for this team at this point. And this is the truth about Alex Smith in 2020. Yes, he went 5 and 1. Okay. Everyone knows that by now. I mean, how many times have you heard that he went 5 and 1 in 2020? He did. He did. And he deserves credit for that. But he overall just wasn't very good. And both things can be true. Your record can be good, but you as a whole, especially in comparison to the rest of your league can also not have been very good. This was an all time season in the NFL in terms of passing offense. In 2020, the NFL as a whole posted all-time highs in completed passes, completion rate, touchdown passes, and quarterback rating, and posted the lowest interception rate in the history of the league, okay? There was a passing game palooza in 2020, the likes of which we had never seen before. And this, of course, has been a trend for years. The NFL has been becoming more and more of a passing league for years. And Washington, very simply, has not been a part of that nearly enough. Okay, with the exception of RG3 in 2012 and those Kirk Cousins seasons, especially 2015, 2016, Washington, for the most part, over this last decade plus of the NFL exploding from a passing game standpoint, has been a non-participant in that phenomenon. And this season highlighted that as much as anything. Do you know that the Washington football team in 2020 had the single worst passing offense in the NFL for football outsiders DVOA metric? DFL, dead bleep and last, was our team in overall passing offense in 2020. And DVOA is done on a percentage basis. The Washington passing game DVOA in 2020 was minus 26.7%. The next worst passing offense, that of the Denver Broncos, was at minus 12.8%. So don't get caught up in like, what exactly does that mean? You know, it has to do with what you do and who you do, what you do, and when you do, what you do. But the point is this, Washington was at minus 26.7%. Denver was at minus 12.8%. Washington was the worst passing offense team in the NFL, and it wasn't close in 2020. Right, Brucey? It means you're close. No, Bruce Allen, that's the problem. Washington wasn't close to the all-time great passing numbers that were being put up across the NFL in 2020, and Alex Smith was a part of that. Alex Smith, in the 2020 season, over eight games, six touchdown passes versus eight interceptions, a yards per pass attempt of 6.28, a total QBR per ESPN of 34.8. Those numbers are brutal, okay? They're not good. They're not close to being good. It means you're close. No, they're not close, Bruce Allen. That's the point. How about this from Pro Football Focus? In 2020, an astounding 67% of Alex Smith's pass attempts targeted pass catchers short of the first down markers. 67%, two thirds of Alex's pass attempts in 2020 were short of the first down markers. And that's not necessarily like all Alex's fault. Okay. I mean, Washington's receiving core, Washington's pass catching core did leave some things to be desired. No doubt about that. But this of course has been Alex's reputation for years. He throws short of the sticks constantly. He's a check down Charlie. And that's not always a bad thing, but that is something to be mindful of. In a league in which guys are throwing often and throwing deep, Alex throws short. 67% of his pass attempts in 2020, targeted pass catchers short of first down markers. That was, by the way, 7 percentage points higher than the percentage for any of the other 35 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL. If you go by pro football focus grade, Alex's grade for the season on a scale of 0 to 100 was 66, ranking number 28 out of the 36 qualified quarterbacks. You know, one of the things that's been said about Alex over the years is, well, he doesn't throw interceptions. He avoids the turnover. Not in 2020, he didn't. Alex over eight games, interception rate of 3.17. That's simply picks divided by pass attempts. 3.17, his highest interception rate. Since 2009, in fact, Dwayne Haskins interception rate for 2020 was lower than Alex's. Dwayne's was at 2.9. Now look, uh, some of those picks were not Alex's fault, but you could say that about every quarterback. The fact that Alex had this high interception rate, especially for him, I mean, again, his highest in a year since 2009, that's like the one thing he'd been good at for years, not throwing picks. He threw picks in 2020. And then there are the legs the extent to which alex smith was not a run threat in 2020 cannot be overstated 8 games 10 carries 3 rushing yards that's it the guy had 3 rushing yards over 8 games and i'm not here to like indict him for that 17 surgeries on the right leg i get it man but in today's nfl especially you got to have a quarterback who's a run threat if he's not an outstanding pocket passer, all right? Like if you're Tom Brady and you're not that much of a run threat, okay, that's forgiven. But if you're Alex Smith and you're putting up the pedestrian numbers we just went through, you better be threatening a defense with your legs. Alex did not do that. Three rushing yards over eight games. For comparison's sake, Taylor Heineke over just his two games, the regular season game and the postseason game, nine carries, 68 yards and a touchdown. Taylor Heineke in two games did so much more than Alex did over eight games as a run threat. Heck, Heineke over two games did so much more than basically anybody did on the team last year in terms of the quarterback position as a run threat. But you get the idea. Like in today's NFL, three rushing yards over eight games, all of those read option looking carries for Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick in 2020— I use the phrase read option looking because to me, they were not true read option runs because Alex never kept the ball. He never kept the football. What good is putting the football in the belly of the back to make the defense wonder? Well, is he going to hold onto it or is he going to end up handing the ball off when you never end up holding on to the football? Three rushing yards over eight games. And then you add on top of all of this, right? The cherry on top of the Sunday, Alex's age. He's going into his age 37 season. This is not some 22-year-old who is growing and evolving. This is a guy who's clinging to what he has been. And again, is coming off one of the worst injury situations you could ever imagine. So yeah, all-time great comeback. Yeah, all-time great dude. But as a quarterback, again, cold-blooded, ruthless aggression as a quarterback, a road to nowhere, especially for this team at this point. Another reason that Washington reportedly releasing Alex Smith is 100% the right move, the money, okay? I mean, this is simple, but this is a big part of this. Releasing Alex Smith saves Washington $14.7 million against the salary cap and generates a mere $8.6 million dead money hit. Now, I use the word mere. I mean, that's not insignificant, $8.6 million in dead money, but that is actually better than what we initially thought and the reporting on all of this has been confusing so some of this may change but those numbers I just read to you 14.7 million dollars in savings 8.6 million dollars in dead money those numbers are better than they were supposed to be due to this 12 million dollar insurance policy that Washington had on Alex suffering a catastrophic injury that insurance policy and this has been talked about for a while That insurance policy, the verbiage for it, was put into Alex's actual contract extension that he signed in that 2018 offseason. And it's not just an insurance policy to where Washington saves money. It's an insurance policy by which Washington actually can gain cap credit. And apparently, even though he ended up coming back and playing, there is an application here of this insurance policy. Like I said, some of this stuff is still murky, but this was the reporting that was going on on Monday. Now, it's worth noting these insurance policies that teams will take out in quarterback contracts, uh, $12 million is actually rather low. Uh, I had a chat a few years back with J.I. Halsell, the former Washington salary cap analyst, player agent. Uh, he told me that Matt Ryan's contract extension with the Atlanta Falcons had about a $20 million Insurance clause. You know, it's funny. We had on the Monday podcast my chat with Brent, aka Burgundy Blog. One of the initial exchanges I had with Burgundy Blog was him tweeting me back in December of 2018, talking about all of the other instances of insurance policies for NFL teams with quarterbacks and how those policies were for so much more than the 12 million dollars that Washington had with Alex, Uh, Kirk Cousins, Matthew Stafford. According to Burgundy Blog, who gets his hands on some of this contract intel both allowed up to $40 million of coverage. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, in addition to Matt Ryan, had about a $20 million insurance policy uh, in the contract. So, you know, Washington, I mean, I give the team credit for the $12 million insurance policy scenario, but also you look around the NFL, a lot of teams did a lot more. Obviously, this was a Bruce Allen contract, not a Ron Rivera contract, but worth pointing that out. But whatever the case may be, million against the salary cap being saved for Washington. $8.6 million in dead money. Washington, by releasing Alex, is bringing its projected salary cap space for OverTheCap.com to about $52 million. The fourth highest in the NFL as things stand right now. $52 million in cap space, which remember can be carried over. So, I know some people say, "Like, what were they going to do? Spend all that this off season? I don't know. Maybe, but if they don't, they can carry it over into next season. We don't know with certainty what the cap is going to be for 2021. We do know it's going to be lower than it was in 2020. And Washington has a real opportunity this off season with this cap space to essentially be zigging when everyone else is zagging. Okay, you're going to have a lot of teams in very difficult, very tight cap predicaments, Washington is not going to be among those teams. This could actually end up being a very lukewarm market in terms of free agency. You may not have the bidding wars you normally have. I mean, we'll see. It's it's tough sometimes to predict this stuff, but it could be that just a handful of teams are true major players in free agency this offseason. Washington is now fully equipped to be a major player in free agency and releasing Alex Smith heightens. That ability. And then a third major reason for why Washington reportedly releasing Alex Smith is 100% the right move would be this. It sure feels, doesn't it, like things were maybe starting to turn. At least somewhat between the player and the team. And what had become this ultra feel good story was maybe kinda sorta getting a little ugly and getting a little uncomfortable. And so now certainly feels like the right time to end this thing, you know? Get out while the getting is still at least relatively good. Those Alex comments to GQ.com that came out last Tuesday, February 23rd, they were impossible to ignore. And like I said at the time, yeah, we didn't have the full context in terms of the audio, but if you read what he said, I don't know how much really could be altered by hearing how he said what he said. I mean, Alex, quote, So there was a very small group of people that actually thought I could do this. I think the rest of the world either doubted me or they patronized me. Yeah, that's really nice that you're trying. When I decided to come back, I definitely threw a wrench in the team's plan. They didn't see it, didn't want me there, didn't want me to be a part of it, didn't want me to be on the team, the roster, didn't want to give me a chance. Mind you, it was a whole new regime. They came in, I'm like the leftovers and I'm hurt and I'm this liability. Heck no they didn't want me there. Like we could hear the audio of that. I'm not sure how much that really could change what he was trying to say. I mean, that's pretty direct. You know, those are pretty pointed words from Alex. And like I said last week, that to me was a shot back at Ron Rivera. You know, Alex quote, it wasn't like open arms coming back after two years. Like how much interpretation really truly do you need with those quotes there from Alex to GQ.com. Ron, for months, had been very lukewarm when it came to talking about Alex Smith, especially regarding him being back with the team for 2021. Never forget what Ron said December 30th, the Wednesday, before the NFC East clinching win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17. Ron gets asked basically a softball question about Alex. Would you be in this position if not for Alex? And Ron says, "Mm, yeah, if Kyle Allen hadn't gotten hurt, that to me spoke a thousand words when Ron said that, you know, Ron, after the win at the Eagles admitted to having actually considered benching Alex, uh, Ron had been saying for weeks things like, well, we'll see about Alex being back with the team. And, you know, we have to go through the process. You know, it just, it always felt like Ron was not overly enthused about having Alex back on the team for 2021. And like I said, I didn't blame Ron for feeling that way. I just outlined why Ron should have felt that way. But, you know, Ron spoke as he spoke and Alex struck back. And so you really had to wonder, like, not that this was going to become some blood feud between the two, but it was starting to get a little awkward. And so cut the ties now, end the thing now, and years from now, you can look back upon Alex and the great comeback of 2020 and winning the NFC East and Ron's first season in a positive way, because right now, I don't think it is that positive between those two And I think it's good to let this thing end as opposed to letting it become potentially more contentious. Look, it looks like Alex does want to play in 2021. He hasn't said for sure that he's going to continue his career, but every indication since the end of the 2020 season has been that he wants to continue playing, right? We had that report from ESPN's Jeremy Fowler on Valentine's Day, in fact, on SportsCenter saying that he had been told that Alex wants to continue playing football and is, quote, leaning. That way, uh, Alex on that uh, podcast he did with Kyle Brandt that dropped on February 17th, 10 questions with Kyle Brandt said that his ability to play in the 2020 season, quote, fueled me even more that I can roll and keep going, end quote. One more thing on Washington and Alex Smith. So this issue of quarterback wins, I, I think most of you listening by now uh, recognize this, but just for those who don't or those who really get caught up in it, But Alex went five and one, you know, or the larger reality of Alex over his time with Washington, 2018 through 2020, went 11 and five. The rest of Washington's quarterbacks over those three seasons, five and 26. And that is a jaw dropping discrepancy, right? Alex, 11 and five. Everyone else over the last three years in terms of Washington quarterbacks, five and 26. And that is a credit to Alex. Like there are things that he brings to the table that you can't quantify via things like total QBR and Pro Football Focus grades. And I get that. And I commend Alex for the things that he brings to the table that you can't just put a number on. But for those who get all caught up in the record, and my god, he was 5 and 1, he was 11 and 5. Understand how faulty it is to evaluate quarterbacks especially via their records. Do you know what Deshaun Watson's record was in 2020? 4 and 12. So if you just go by Deshaun Watson's record in 2020, you're like, he's not that good. He ain't all bad. Why is everyone going so nuts over potentially trading for him? He went 4-12 and in 2020. Well, of course, we know that that record is not a reflection for who Watson is as a quarterback. Deshaun Watson in 2020 was first in the NFL in yards per pass attempt. First in the league in passing yards, third in the league in completion percentage, 12th in the league in total QBR, second in the league in passer rating. So that's a better representation of Deshaun Watson as a quarterback, not his 4-12 and record. How about Justin Herbert? Do You know what Justin Herbert's record was in 2020? Six and nine. All this talk about how great of a rookie season he had for the Los Angeles Chargers. He went six and nine. That's not a very good record. No, it's not. But does that really, truly, fairly represent Justin Herbert's rookie year? Or is it maybe that his 31 touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions better represents his rookie year? Is it maybe that his 4,336 passing yards better represent his rookie year? How about maybe the greatest quarterback in Washington football team history, Sonny Jurgensen, Do you know what his career record in the regular season was? Sonny, all time as a regular season NFL quarterback, 69, 71, and seven. Below 500, a losing quarterback was Sonny in terms of his NFL career. If you go by his record, is that the right way to view Sonny? Is that the right prism through which to examine the career of the great Sonny Jurgensen, or maybe should we look at some other things? Like, I don't know, the fact that he played on a bunch of teams with bad defenses, and the fact that he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as, all right, maybe that's what he was as a quarterback, as opposed to, again, 69-71-7. and It's the same thing with pitchers in baseball. You can't just go by records, okay? Records are faulty. Records are team dependent. You got to try to isolate the individual performance or at the very least look at a guy and say, well, he may have won, but did his teams win because of him or in spite of him? And yet he may have lost, but th- did the team lose because of him or did the team lose for reasons having nothing to do with him? And that's what needs to always be remembered about Alex and him being 11 and 5. Great record. It is a testament to a point of things he brings to the table, but it is not just an eraser for those things that he does not bring to the table and that I don't believe he will be bringing to the table moving forward. All right, so that's my take on Washington reportedly releasing Alex Smith. But am I missing something? Am I and people like me not properly appreciating what Alex brought to Washington in 2018 and then again in 2020, very pleased to be joined now by Mitch Tischler of NBC Sports Washington. You hear him on the Washington Football Talk podcast with JP Finley and Pete Haley. Mitch, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate you coming on very much. So, want to get kind of a different perspective on Alex being released here. And you tweeted on Monday: the number of people dismissing Alex's impact is astounding in 3 years, WFT 11 and 5 in games he started, 5 and 26 in games he didn't. Hard to not attribute that to Alex. I, I guess provide context to that tweet if you would. Like what, what is the official Mitch Tischler stance on Washington reportedly releasing Alex Smith?
2: I think that everyone can appreciate how great of a story Alex's uh comeback was while also understanding that it's probably time for the team to move on from him. So by no no means was I saying that They should be paying him 20 million to be their starting quarterback in 2021. However, when you look back at his time here, a lot of people dismissed him as check down Charlie and all these different things. And as far as I'm concerned, when you look at the the raw numbers, while they're not the prettiest stats and they're not going to blow anybody off the page, at the end of the day, when he was on the field, the Washington football team won. And when he wasn't, they didn't. And I think that 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 says something about him as a quarterback and what he brought to this team
1: Yeah, I think it's a difficult issue. And I know it's something I've grappled with because it's like you look at the numbers and they're not pretty. And it's not like he quarterbacked these great prolific offenses. But then you look at not just his record here, but the other quarterbacks records here during his time here. And like there's a big time difference. And it's hard. It's hard not to think there might be something to that. So how like should we reconcile that? Like how do you look at, on the one hand? Things like you know his QBR and his yards per pass attempt aren't good at all, but eleven and five—I mean, that's really nice and that's a lot better than what we've grown accustomed to in these parts. I think it's hard to
2: reconcile that. And for the most part, I think QB wins is a flawed stat. I certainly wouldn't use it to compare Deshaun to Watson to Russ Wilson, who you know, which might be pertinent to Washington football team fans. But when you look at it in the context of this team and the past three seasons. I think it speaks volumes because everyone wants to say, oh, the defense won this game or the defense did this and Alex didn't do this. And, you know, it was Terry McLaurin made a great play on a bad throw, this, that, and the other thing. It's the same fundamental team that started for Dwayne Haskins, that was there for Kyle Allen, that was there for all of these guys that have played quarterback in Washington the past three years. And you look at Alex's 11-5 and record and it says something. Now, one of the best abilities for a quarterback is availability. And that's why I think Kirk Cousins was a little bit criminally underrated in his time here in D.C. because there's something about being on the field. And certainly Alex didn't have that. We know all about the injuries and everything else that came with it. But for this team and the way that that they performed when he was on the field versus when he was off the field, I think says a lot. And, And to me, it needs to be appreciated not just for a guy who had an incredible comeback, but for a guy that, for whatever reason it was, the intangibles, whatever it was that he brought to the field, made a difference for Washington.
1: You're so right, by the way, about Kirk, uh, that he never gets credit for that. He's been incredibly durable in his career. And like that by itself is worth so much. And we obviously have come to learn that as Washington football team fans. So if you had to like articulate these intangibles, these things that you can't quantify, I know you guys have talked about it many times on the Washington football talk podcast there, but like, what is it like if we we had to try to itemize or bullet point okay what is it that Alex did so well to where his record was 11 of 5 and it was 5 and 26 for everybody else what would some of those things be in your opinion
2: I mean I think the intangible things are leadership and trust experience but I think the tangible on the field thing that you could see was how he spread the ball around to all of his different receivers and that includes the running backs and tight ends and everybody else and by doing that players weren't a play that was called for Terry McLaurin. Maybe your number two or number three receiver aren't going to run their routes hard. And maybe that affects the way that how open Terry is able to get. And I think the fact that he was able to distribute the ball to everybody on the field kept everybody on the offense involved and and excited about every play because, hey, the ball could be coming my way. Whereas other quarterbacks you saw lock into their number one target or maybe their their number one target and their check down guy. And so for me, I think that the offense – operated more smoothly with Alex on the field because every player on offense knew that there was an opportunity that they were going to see the ball on any given play.
1: Talking with Mitch Tischler of NBC Sports Washington, one of the hosts of the Washington Football Talk podcast of Washington reportedly releasing Alex Smith. So this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you think would have happened in 2018 had Alex not gotten injured? They were 6-3, and three, fell to 6-4 and four with that loss to Houston, the game in which he gets hurt. They had a number of close wins that year, but they did have wins. I know one of the things that really threw me off was when they lost, they seemed to lose big. Like they got ripped by Indianapolis. They got shredded at New Orleans. They lost, uh, by a sizable amount to Atlanta. I've never been one of these people who felt like they would have finished, you know, 10 and 6 or 11 and 5. Like they ended up 7 and 9. I kind of feel like Their final record even had Alex stayed healthy wouldn't have been far from that. But what say you like? What do you think would have happened in 2018 had he stayed healthy?
2: It's hard to say. I certainly think they would have been a playoff team. It's hard to imagine that they would have fallen off a cliff and not made the playoffs. I think the biggest impact that Alex's 2018 injury had was the 2019 drafting of Dwayne Haskins. I think that forced the issue big time for this team in terms of trying to find that quarterback of the future. Whereas had Alex stayed healthy and they played well... And they made the playoffs. You know that you have them locked in for a few years at a, you know, semi reasonable contract. And that could have pushed the quarterback pressure to find the, the quarterback of the future, QBX, the long-term guy down the road a little bit. So, so that's where kind of the biggest impact for me that I see Alex's injury, but 2018 specifically, I think they would have been a playoff team. And for a team that hasn't done much in three decades, I think that, you know, every opportunity to make the playoffs is a, is a big deal for them, for this team. Until they find a way to start winning playoff games and then you can start pushing towards conference championships and Super Bowls and all those things that are, that are down the line for them. But, but specifically in 2018, I think they would have been a playoff team and I think it would have got the excitement going for everybody.
1: It is so interesting because if he doesn't get hurt, yeah, I mean, maybe Danny doesn't force the drafting of Dwayne Haskins. I mean, you know, then again, you could say if he continued to have the numbers he had and maybe they only finish eight and eight, And it never felt like Jay Gruden was in love with him to begin with. And we know now he had zero role in the trade for Alex. Maybe they do end up drafting a quarterback. Like, it's just, it's impossible to say. So with what has happened here over the last few months, I I know one of the things that really has stood out to me is the way Ron Rivera had been talking about Alex Smith. And I don't think Ron was in love at all with Alex coming back to this team. I mean, just like time after time, he would say things that made you feel that way. The the famous response the Wednesday before the Week 17 win affiliate clinch Clinton Division, where he gets asked, would you be here if not for Alex? And he goes, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy. I mean, I just thought that was so telling. Uh, and then we, of course, we get these Alex comments to GQ.com that came out last week that I kind of took as a pushback, like a strike back from Alex towards Ron with the way Ron had been speaking about Alex. But I'm just curious, like, w- what do you make of that Rivera-Smith dynamic, especially as it relates to, say, the last, you know, month and a half or so?
2: Yeah, it certainly was an interesting dynamic. I mean, you know, if you look at it in a vacuum outside of Washington football, you know, if I'm looking at a head coach that's starting a five, as a five year contract stated before the season, they think it's a two to three year rebuild. Does that head coach want a 36 year old quarterback, a then 36 year old quarterback coming off 17 surgeries to be, you know, to be, to be, uh, to be your starting guy? Probably not. He wants to give a couple of young guys opportunities and see where they fit in. So it makes sense that you know, Ron wasn't in love with the fact that Alex was coming back simply for the fact that he doesn't fit into any sort of long-term plan in any in any which way. Now, as we fast forward to the GQ comments, to me, I think part of that was Alex starting to turn the narrative for himself as we get to this offseason. Because if we get to, you know, today, March 1st, tomorrow, whatever, Washington decides to officially move on from Alex, then the narrative is, oh, hey, the coach and the team that saw him, you know, have this incredible comeback, was in the room with him as he was, you know, rehabbing and, and getting back to the field. They don't think that he can play anymore. Why would another team then give him an opportunity to, an opportunity to start or at least compete for a starting job? So I think for Alex, it's, start a, it's sort of, hey, listen, you know, Ron never really wanted us, wanted me here. And it makes sense when, you know, when you look at it. But I'm going to head into this offseason and someone else should give me a chance who actually wants me here. Because look, I proved I could play last year. It was kind of the best of both worlds for everybody. Washington, you know, was able to finish the the story for Alex in terms of the entire comeback. They got he got to fill in when they needed somebody who could could competently move the team. They made the playoffs. Alex got to prove that he could get back on the field. They could still sling him a little bit through for his career high against Detroit. You know, when he got a chance to be out there, and now both sides get to amicably part, hopefully, and, and you know things start you know, moving for Rod in the direction that he wants to and finding his QB of the future. And Alex gets one more shot to prove that he can still do it in the league.
1: That is one of the things that's so funny is that Alex, for a brief period of time this past year, looked like a different Alex with the back-to-back 300-yard games and throwing the ball downfield. And it was like, wow, it's not just that he's back. It's that he's back plus, like he looks different. And then he, of course, kind of settled into the Alex Smith we came to know, of course, the, uh, the right leg injury, what they called the calf injury, which we know by now really wasn't a calf injury, uh, had something to do with that. All right. So you use the phrase that you guys use on your pot all the time is a great phrase, QBX, uh, <laughs> the never ending search for quarterback confidence and stability, uh, with our football team. Point blank. Who do you want? What do you want? What's your thinking in terms of what the team should do to round out that quarterback mix for 2021?
2: I, I want to see them swing for the fences. I want to see them go after uh, Russ Wilson if he becomes available and opens up the teams that he's willing to drop his his uh, his no trade clause for. Deshaun Watson too. I mean, the the reported ask for for Houston is astronomical, and I wouldn't touch that. But let's also we're in the you know the aftermath of Carson Wentz getting traded, and the Eagles were saying they wanted two number ones for him. Look what they ended up having to take for him because he forced his way out of town, basically. So. When I look at Deshaun, it's gonna take a King's ransom, but I don't think it's gonna be the two ones, two twos, and two starters on defense or two starters that uh the Texans are reportedly asking for. And honestly, if you were to ask me today if I would do the RG three twa- trade trade for Deshaun Watson, the answer is yes. I would go ahead and make that move because any of the other guys that they're that they could bring in during this offseason, the question of will this could this team play for a Super Bowl, the answer is maybe. You know Who knows? You bring in Deshaun and every single game becomes winnable. You have such a stout defense that all you need is a little bit of excitement, a little bit of, of beyond-competent quarterback play on offense, and this team turn, can turn into a juggernaut. And to miss a couple first-round picks, to have that locked up for the next four years is, is something that I'd be willing, willing to take. After that, if they don't end up swinging big, I, I think this gets pushed down the road another year, and you end up with a with a one year holdover, and you know somebody who's not particularly exciting, whether that's Tyrod Taylor, Ryan Fitzpatrick, somebody who they bring in to, to battle with Taylor Heineke and, and see who the better better QB is. But for me, I want to take a big swing, and if it's anyone but kind of those big two, maybe Derek Carr, those big three quarterbacks, I want bringing folks to compete. And whoever is the best one that Ron thinks can run this offense and Scott Turner can can do something with, that's the guy they go with for a year before you really push for that for that. You know,
1: long term solution. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, You know, it's a kind of thing where it's like, if the opportunity is there, you gotta pounce, but it's also something where you can't force the opportunity. Like, don't sell yourself, don't delude yourself into thinking someone is the answer when he's not. Like, if you have to wait a year, there's nothing you can do about that, but if the opportunity presents itself, jump all over it. Now, with Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, what do you think they have in those two? Like, t- To what extent are they viable options for 2021 and maybe beyond 2021?
2: I might be wrong, but I think they're kind of the same player. And in the short amount of time that we saw them on the field, I liked what I saw from Taylor Heineke Moore. I certainly think they're going to bring Kyle Allen back in some regard. But if I believe they're going to draft a quarterback somewhere, not necessarily at number 19 or in the first round. I believe they're going to bring in a veteran quarterback as well. That leaves one spot for either Taylor Heineke or Kyle Allen. I think that you're going to see a situation where one of those two isn't backing. To me, I don't think it's going to be Kyle Allen. It's hard to say what you have in Taylor Heineke long term because we saw it for five quarters after he had, you know, a month in the, in the offense. I think, you know, you'll get a, a much better feel for, for, for what his potential is as we get into next season. That's why, you know, Ron preaches, uh, competition at every spot. And he said he made a mistake anointing Dwayne Haskins as starter last year. I don't expect he's going to make that mistake again. So you're going to get an opportunity to see these guys compete in, you know, in the off season and training camp and and hopefully into the, hopefully into the preseason before a guy is is named starter. And I think we'll have a better feel for where everybody is. And and just to circle back to the, the you know big time trade talk, you know, with quarterbacks, Ron's proven in a short time here that he's going to swing big, but there's also a ceiling to where he's going to swing. So Washington football fans should, have faith that if Ron is going to make a push for one of those big names, there's a ceiling and he's not going to go above that ceiling like he, like he may have been forced to do if they wanted to go get Matt Stafford. So I, I think that I trust Ron at the helm and I think that, you know, between him and Scott Turner, the decisions that they make at quarterback are going to be, are going to be the right decisions.
1: Final question. So one of the things, of course, that releasing Alex Smith is doing is that it's creating even more cap space for a Washington team that already had ample cap space. And even with the salary cap going down, Washington is in a great position from a cap standpoint. Uh, we did not see them act uber aggressively last offseason in free agency. They did make the big try for Amore Cooper. That didn't work. And then after that, you know, decent contract for Kendall Fuller. But, you know, beyond that, it was a lot of these, you know, on the cheap, ironically enough, like Bruce Allen type deals, right? For like the JD McKissicks and the Logan Thomases. And a lot of them actually ended up working out. But with this cap room and with, you know, the seven and nine year and a defense that looks good, you know, has another level that it can get to, do you expect them to be big players in free agency? Like, could you see them making a major splash or two or maybe even more this off season, or do you not sense that?
2: I do. I do think they are going to be major players at a bunch of different positions. Washington football fans should hope for this salary cap to be as low as humanly possible this year, because Washington is one of the few teams in the NFL that has a lot of room to move and now an extra 14 million with the, with the cutting of Alex. I mean, I think that when you're, when you look at what this off season is going to look like, I think they're going to see another big swing at wide receiver, a big swing for a linebacker. There are a couple of big names out there. Uh, Javon Brown, the, from, uh, from Titans, you have uh Abonte David from the, uh, Bucks, uh, KJ Wright from the, from the Seahawks. I think those are kind of the three biggest names that are out there. If they can shore up, see, uh, middle linebacker and shore up wide receiver in free agency, I think that creates a, the draft being wide open. And then you can start looking at everybody on the table, best player available at 19, and you're not going to feel like you're, you're snookered into, to filling one of these major holes that Washington has. So yeah, I think they're going to make some, some big swings. And like I said, Ron's proven that, that they have a ceiling for how big of a swing they're going to take. So as they start, you know, offering contracts to these guys, I think there's a, there's a roof to where they're going to go. And, and you have to be confident that, that he's not going to overextend himself when he's trying to, trying to sign these, these free agents.
1: Yeah. I feel you on that. I think this could be a very exciting off season, especially off this past year. Uh th- This could be like an old school Danny kind of off season where they're in it on a bunch of different people and they have the cap room to do it. So, Uh, Why not? I mean, be smart, clearly, but they've got some money to play with here. And especially with so many teams, like you said, with the cap route being low, you know, if everybody's zigging, you can be zagging. Like if everyone's kind of pinching pennies and and counting, you know, where they are in relation to the, the top of the cap, you maybe can be one of the few teams that's out there free spending and making offers that get deals done. So we'll see. Uh, Mitch, it was great to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate it. All the best to you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So the reports on Monday that the Washington football team is going to be releasing Alex Smith, not the only major item you want to be aware of if you're a Washington football team fan, from Monday, NFL insider Peter King of NBC Sports in his Football Morning in America column that got published late Sunday night had the nugget that a 17-game regular season schedule for 2021 is highly likely. And this is not necessarily a surprise. If you recall, the new collective bargaining agreement from last offseason had in it the option for the owners to increase the regular season to 17 games beginning with the 2021 season. And it was considered at the time very likely that that would be happening for 2021. But of course, this is a big deal. I mean, the NFL has had a 16-game schedule for decades. There's been talk for years of ramping that up to 18 games. The players have pushed back on that. And it looks like 17 games, at least for now, is going to be what is settled on. Now, what matters regarding our team is this. The additional game to make it a 17-game schedule, it's going to be, per Peter King, a game against your cross-conference division from two years prior. So it's the AFC East for the NFC East for 2021. The matchup is based on 2020 standings. So if you finished first in the NFC East in 2020, you will be facing the first place team in the AFC East for this 2021 game number 17. And by the way, the AFC teams per Peter will be hosting in 2021. NFC teams will be hosting in 2022. So for the Washington football team, this is going to mean a game at the Buffalo Bills in 2021, right? The Bills won the AFC East. Okay, so put that off to the side. One of the more overrated things in the NFL is when people talk about, well, you're going to have a first place schedule. Okay, you've probably heard that many times over the years. The truth is this, if you're just going back to the 16 game schedule, 14 of the 16 games had nothing to do with where you finished in your division. Literally, where you finished in your division only impacted two of your 16 games season in, season out, during the 16-game schedule era. You had your six intra-division games, right? Two games against each of the three other teams in your division. You had four games against a designated division within your conference. You had four games against a designated division in the opposite conference. So that's 14 games that were already decided by your division, not where you finished in your division. So the whole thing about, well, a first-place schedule, like that's always been so overblown. But understand this for our team for 2021. The now three games being determined by Washington having won the NFC East in 2020. Those three games are as follows. This game number 17 at the Buffalo Bills and games against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field and at the Green Bay Packers because the two games determined from where you finished in your standings, it's one game at home, one game on the road against teams from the two remaining divisions in your conference. So think about this now. The three games that are decided by where Washington finished in 2020, i.e. first place, home to Seattle, at Green Bay, at Buffalo, i.e. Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, and Josh Allen. Now, I'm not a big believer in playing the schedule game in the offseason, season. So many things can change over the course of an NFL season. One of the things to never forget about Washington's 2020 is the stretch that had everybody shaking in their boots and losing sleep. Those three consecutive road games late November into December at Dallas on Thanksgiving, at Pittsburgh, and at San Francisco, right? Remember, oh my God, what's going to happen? At the Cowboys, at the Steelers, at the 49ers. What ended up happening? Washington swept All three games. In fact, that was my bold prediction for the Washington football team prior to the season that Washington would do the thing that nobody gave the team any chance of doing, and that is sweeping that three-game road gauntlet late November into December at the Boys, at the Steelers, and at the Niners. And of course, there were circumstances that impacted all three of those games, including Washington facing the Niners in Arizona, right? But the point is, you just never know. Like what looks to be a brutal run can actually end up being not that bad. The Cowboys were ravaged by injury. The Steelers, it turns out, were a mess as the season went on. And actually, it was that Washington win at the Steelers that really created that mess, or at least was the first true sign of that mess. And the Niners dealt with a whole lot of injury. And like I said, had to actually play that quote-unquote home game against Washington. In Arizona so I'm not trying to like instill fear in you as a Washington fan and saying hey the fact that Washington won the NFC East means Russell Wilson Aaron Rodgers and Josh Allen in 2021 but it is worth noting and remember this about 2022 well yes Washington's defense was much improved and that is true and nothing should take away from that even that disappointing defensive performance against Tampa Bay in the postseason Washington for sure did benefit from playing a very underwhelming crop of opposing quarterbacks. And this is actually something I got into uh, on the Monday podcast in our special chat with Brent, aka Burgundy blog. But among the quarterbacks who Washington faced in 2020, a Carson Wentz who was a shell of his former self, Andy Dalton, and then remember the immortal Ben DiNucci, uh, Ryan Finley in place of the injured Joe Burrow, Andy Dalton again, Nick Mullins, Nate Sudfeld, right, in place of the bench Jalen Hurts in week 17 as Doug Peterson tanked it for the Eagles. So no doubt, like Washington did benefit in 2020 from playing some really underwhelming quarterbacks. Now, could something similar end up happening in 2021? Sure. Guys get hurt. Guys get benched. Guys underperform. We have no idea what's going to happen over the course of the 2021 season. But as things stand now, right, especially if Dallas re-signs Dak Prescott, especially if the Eagles get better quarterback play from Jalen Hurts, especially given that Washington already we know in 2021 is going to be facing the likes of the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field, a.k.a. Patrick Mahomes, Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, a.k.a. Justin Herbert, Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field, a.k.a. Tom Brady. And now you add to that these three games determined by Washington's placement in the NFC East in 2020, and you're looking at Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, and Josh Allen, that doesn't seem, shall we say, like an easy crop of quarterbacks, a weak crop of quarterbacks that Washington will be facing in 2021. Defense has got to continue to get better. And the defense, of course, took a giant step forward in 2020. But there's room for improvement. We saw that in that playoff loss to the Bucks, And you're going to need that improvement, at least as things look right now, given who you'll be facing in 2021. All right, let's talk some baseball here. Nationals with Grapefruit League game number two on Monday, a 7-6 loss to Dusty Baker and the Houston Astros on Monday afternoon. Nats actually gave up five runs in the top of the ninth. Uh, You know, none of that stuff matters in exhibition play. And the guys pitching as the game went on are people you may well never hear from again. So never get caught up in the outcomes of these games or even what ends up happening as these games go on. Two things, though, to really be mindful of with this game for the Nats on Monday. So number one, the Nats hit three consecutive homers off Astros reliever, Steve Cshek, Ryan Zimmerman, Josh Harrison, and Yadiel Hernandez. And it was great to see Zim go deep like that. It was in fact his first home run since game one of the 2019 World Series. I guess Zimmerman did not homer last spring training. And of course, the Nats ended up not having Zimmerman for the 2020 season as he opted out due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But yeah, not since the two-out solo bombed the center of Garrett Cole in the top of the second of that World Series Game 1 win at the Houston Astros had Ryan Zimmerman gone deep until yesterday. And Zimmerman also, by the way, made a nice play in the field. Nice scoop of a low throw from Carter Keyboom near the third baseline. Look, Ryan Zimmerman, we know what the deal is going to be for him in 2021. He is a part of a first-base mix that is probably going to be shouldered for the most part By Josh Bell. I mean, this looks like a classic platoon split that Davey Martinez will be employing here where it'll be Zimmerman batting against lefties and Bell batting against righties. And that's the way it should be, honestly, for Zimmerman at this point. He's going into his age 36 season, didn't play in 2020. He's going to come into 2021 here having not played in at least 150 games in a regular season since 2009. I mean, think about that. Zimmerman hasn't played in 150 games or more in a regular season in more than a decade. 2009, uh, he's played in more than 115 games in a regular season just once, 2017, over his previous six years. So I'm not even counting 2020. Uh, for which, like I said, he opted out. But 2014 through 2019, just one time over those six years did Zimmerman play in just more than 115 games. I mean, the injury history, we're all aware of it. He's had a hard time staying healthy. His most recent season, 2019, featured him playing in just 52 games at regular season due to two separate stints on the 10-day injured list due to plantar fasciitis in the right foot. So this is actually, I think, the perfect scenario for Zimmerman. He's back with his team. He can be used as a late-inning defensive replacement for a guy in Bell who is not good defensively, but when it comes to leaning on Zim, you're not going to be doing that. You're certainly not planning on doing that going into the year. About 75% of the pitching in the majors is right-handed. You're going to have Bell as your guy against righties and Zimmerman as your guy against lefties. And that's a first base shapes up for 2021. I think it's a good plan. I mean, it does bank a lot on Josh Bell bouncing back. You know, Josh Bell did not have a good 2020, but he did have a monster. 2019, he was a pretty good hitter over his first three major league seasons, 2016 to 2018. Uh, Bell attributed the 2020 struggles to swing mechanics issues and also due to the spring training shutdown due to the pandemic. So, you know, 2020 was an odd year for everybody. We get that. Uh, Bell, I mean, to me, the guy profiles like a great hitter. I mean, he looks like a tank, okay? I was watching him in that Nats exhibition opener on Sunday, that game against the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, he looks the part, okay? Now, that doesn't always mean you play the part, but he's got the look. I mean, the guy's all jacked up. You know, 2019, the guy had an OPS plus of 142. That's outstanding, 100 is league average. OPS Plus is just your adjusted OPS. It's adjusted for your league and your home ballpark. So 142, he was 42% better than the average National League hitter Bell was in 2019. He slugged 569, Bell did, in 2019. So he's got major production potential. It's just a matter of harnessing it and getting back to some of the things he was doing in 2019. But very nice to see Zimmerman do as he did yesterday. And you know, I mentioned Josh Harrison going deep as well. Don't sleep on Josh Harrison. One of the first things the Nats did this past offseason was re-sign Josh Harrison. Uh, age 33 season is what he's going into. He's a versatile player, can play the infield, can play the outfield. And he was a productive player for the Nats in 2020. You know, there weren't many Nats who were really good offensively last year beyond Juan Soto and Trey Turner. Josh Harrison was actually among them. He was released by Philadelphia July 21st. The Nats signed him on July 27th, and Harrison over 91 plate appearances with the Nats, 278 batting average, 352 on base percentage. That's really good. Uh Josh Harrison, look, he's not the player he was. He had a terrible 2019 with Detroit. Like I said, he got released by the Phillies last summer, but Josh Harrison during his best years with Pittsburgh was a really good player. He had a very good 2014, had a good 2017, and the Nats have had this pension in recent years for taking guys discarded by other teams and getting mileage out of them, getting production out of them. You know, is Drupal Cabrera is a great example of that. Gerardo Para, the baby shark, great example of that. And Josh Harrison, to a lesser extent, certainly last year uh, was an example of that as well. The other thing from the Nats exhibition game on Monday was this, Austin Voth was the starting pitcher. Austin Voth, is in that uh, three-way dance for the fifth spot in the Nats rotation, right? It is Voth versus Eric Fetty versus Joe Ross for what seems like the 18th consecutive season. Those three guys are always battling for the fifth spot in the Nats rotation. And Voth, look, it was a limited sample size of work, but he did a nice job through a perfect first inning. Uh This off Eric Fetty having largely struggled in that exhibition opener on Sunday. Uh Fetty, one run in one inning, but he gave up a single, gave up two walks, threw a wild pitch. He threw just 12 of his 28 pitches for strikes. You know, if you're like charting this battle for the fifth spot, you know, Joe Ross has the clubhouse lead. Like he, or, or I should say he goes into this as the favorite to get that number five spot. Fetty and both have work to do. Fetty did not have a good game number one in terms of his spring training. Now he did avoid the inning becoming a true blow-up inning. Actually did a nice job. He used uh, his cutter to mitigate the damage. So I do give Fetty credit for that. But, you know, it was not a great showing. I mean, again, 12 of your 28 pitches for strikes. That's it. That's not good. Voth was good uh, yesterday, albeit, again, in, in a limited uh sample of work here. Austin Voth, fifth-round pick in 2013. Like Fetty, he's largely struggled at the Major League level so far. Three Major League seasons for Voth, an ERA of 5'11". Uh, But he is much more of a strikeout pitcher than Fetty is. Voth's career strikeouts per nine innings, 8.4. That's pretty good. Uh, but also for Voth like Fetty is, these are not like young prospects. Austin Voth is going into his age 29 season. Fetty is going into his age 28 season. Usually at those ages, you kind of are what you are. I mean, there are late bloomers, that is true. Uh, but this still looks like Joe Ross's spot to lose in terms of that fifth spot in the Nats rotation. As for the Orioles on Monday, a four-all tie with the Philadelphia Phillies on Monday afternoon. And what stood out from this game was the performance of D.J. Stewart. Uh, D.J. Stewart hit a two-run homer off the Phillies' ace, Aaron Nola. Actually ended up finishing with three runs batted in. Look, the Orioles, we all know it's about this rebuild. It's about this total teardown and building the franchise back up in a modern, progressive, proper way. What this upcoming season is about, as much as anything, is trying to engineer some more trades that bring in some more prospects. We talked about that on Monday's podcast, i.e. trading away a Trey Mancini, i.e. hopefully rehabbing the likes of Matt Harvey and or Felix Hernandez and or Wade LeBlanc to where you can flip one or more for prospects. But the year also is about seeing young players develop and hopefully really give you optimism for what's to come here. And DJ Stewart is a part of that crop of young Orioles who you feel like at least have a chance to be really good, hopefully sooner rather than later. The Orioles took Stewart with the number 25 overall pick in the 2015 draft out of Florida State. He's going into his age 27 season and Stewart last year, 112 major league plate appearances. It's interesting. He had a batting average of just 193, but he had a 355 on base percentage. You know, it's a classic case of why you can't just go by batting average with players. It's about that you get on base. And look, 193 is not good. Like you need to be better than 193 in terms of your batting average. But what you pay attention, I think, far more, what matters far more is your on-base percentage. How often are you getting on base? Because that factors in both hits and walks, right? Batting average is just factoring in hits. And DJ Stewart in 2020, just 17 hits, but 20 walks. So that's like a classic example of how, Batting average can tell you one story. On base percentage can tell you an entirely different story. A 193 batting average is not good, but a 355 on base percentage is quite good. And the 20 walks that DJ Stewart drew in 2020 were why that OBP was so high. But Stewart with the homer off Nola, you know, the Orioles starting outfield on Monday, it was DJ Stewart in right field, Austin Hayes in center field, and Ryan Mountcastle in left field. And you do wonder if that is the outfield of the future. You know, you do wonder if like that's what we're going to come to know from an Orioles perspective in the coming years here. Now, Castle can also play first base. You know, I don't know that they really want him in left field long term. We'll see. You know, we'll, you know, and this probably can be a guy who can play a little bit of both. But, you know, these are two other young guys who you have hopes for here. Castle was taken with the number 36 overall pick. In the 2015 draft, he's going into just his age 24 season and he was terrific during his time at the major league level in 2020. 140 plate appearances, 333 batting average, 386 on base percentage, 492 slugging percentage, five home runs for Ryan Mountcastle in his time at the major league level in 2020. And then there's Austin Hayes, who's the best of the bunch in terms of the outfield defense. Third round pick in 2016 going into his age 25 season didn't necessarily hit that great in 2020 though he did have a 279 batting average but plus four defensive run save for Austin Hayes over 274 innings in the outfield in 2020 so we don't know I mean it's there's a lot to be determined with these guys but you know that homer by Stewart off Nola on Monday it's kind of like a snapshot of what you hope is coming if you're an Orioles fan from some of these guys Stewart, Mountcastle, Hayes, you know, obviously you've got the biggest prospect of the bunch, the top overall pick in the 2019 draft, Adley Rutschman, the catcher. You still do have someone like Anthony Santander. He's only going into his age 26 season, had a really good 2020, a 575 slugging percentage for Santander last season. Someone who I think can be a part of the rebuild moving forward. And you got some pitching prospects, finally, for the first time in forever. The Orioles actually have some hope. When it comes to the young arms, but interesting to see that from Stewart on Monday and hopefully a sign of things to come from him and others if you're an Orioles fan. All right. One more item before we call it a show and let's talk some wahoo wah. Virginia basketball. The number 21 Cavaliers get to 16 and six overall, 12 and four in the ACC, 62 51 win over Miami at John Paul Jones Arena. On Monday night, we are in the month of March, and so we're now just not talking about our two usual teams on this podcast, Maryland and Georgetown, but we're expanding things a bit. We talked Virginia Tech on Monday. We're talking Virginia here on this Tuesday. So the Cavaliers are once again good this season, just not quite as good as we've come to know them. Cavs as of games through Monday, number 15 in Division 1 per KenPalm.com. So that's a good ranking, right? Top 15 team in the country per the analytics, but you know, they are not talking like top five here in terms of Virginia. And the thing with the Cavaliers is they really, truth be told, needed this win over Miami on Monday night. Virginia dropped three straight and the first loss of that losing streak was particularly ugly. 81-60 loss at then number 16 Florida State on February 15th. The Cavs in that game allowed the Seminoles to shoot 50% from the field including 13-24 on threes. You then had a 66-65 loss at Duke on February 20th. Cavs in that game allowed the Blue Devils to shoot 51% from the field. And then came a 68-61 home loss to NC State on February 24th. But the Cavs beat up on Miami last night. Look, the Hurricanes are injury-ravaged this season, the Hurricanes are not good. This season, Miami came into the game just three and fourteen in the ACC, and honestly, this was not just an easy breezy kind of game for Virginia. The game was not the blowout that it should have been. The Cavs early in the second half led by thirteen at forty three thirty, but allowed Miami to get to within six at fifty five forty nine with three minutes left. Then did go on a seven zero run. To seal the deal. But there are issues for Virginia. The Cavs in the second half on Monday night did not shoot well. Thirty-two point one percent, including three of thirteen on threes. Two key players did not play particularly well. Uh the seven-one redshirt senior Jay Huff on what was senior night in Charlottesville, a mere two for ten from the field finished with just seven points to go with seven rebounds. The Virginia point guard, Keyhei Clark, did have five assists versus one turnover, but just two points on one of four shooting. And in fact, neither he nor Huff was on the floor to begin the second half. And you know, I mentioned some of those recent defensive performances during the three-game losing streak. Virginia perkenpalm dot com is just number twenty-eight in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency, which is points allowed per one hundred possessions adjusted for opponents now for just about any other program being 28th in division one in adjusted defensive efficiency would be quite good but for Virginia it's a different story Virginia for years has been top five in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency this year 28th in the country here so Cavaliers again it's a good team but it's not the great team it's not the loaded defensive team that we've come to know here during this Tony Bennett era. Uh, Cavaliers did clinch a double buy and a top four seed in the ACC tournament with that win over Miami. ACC tournament going to be taking place at the Greensboro Coliseum. What's supposed to take place, as some of you may know, at Capital One Arena, but uh, this past November got moved due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, was a good night for Sam Hauser, the uh, redshirt senior, the Marquette transfer, 4-9 on threes. He finished with 18.6 rebounds and a couple of blocks. Uh, Hauser's been really good for Virginia this year. In fact, in that home loss to NC State, he was like the only guy who did anything offensively. Five for eleven on threes for Hauser in that game. Rest of the Cavaliers went two of fourteen on threes. Also, pretty good game on Monday night for Trey Murphy the third. Two of five on threes. Twelve point six rebounds and three steals. One regular season game left for Virginia at Louisville Saturday afternoon at four. Alright, that will do it for you and for me for now. Keep the feedback coming on Twitter at Al Galdi via email the Al podcast at yahoo.com. Comment on anything I talk about. Disagree with me on anything that I say. And let me know what you want with this podcast. You know, I I certainly have like a vision and outlook for what this podcast should be, what I want it to be. But that doesn't mean that like I've got all the answers, you know, and I certainly welcome input from you guys. So if you want more of this or less of that, or you want me to consider having person X on or person Y on, you know, tell me I'm, I'm open to suggestions here. You know, we are in this thing together. We are riding together on this venture. That is the Al Galdi podcast. Thank you for all of the subscribing, the rating, and the reviewing. Again, that stuff helps a lot, so appreciate it very much. I'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. It means you're close.